up your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And as you do that, it's summertime. And so I was thinking this morning uh, while I was um, getting ready for the, uh, for the service, what summertime meant for me as a kid. Uh, and so like one of the things for me was I got to go to my grandparents during the summer, which was fun. How many of you like to go to your grandparents? during the summer. Not many people. Okay, your grandparents weren't as awesome as mine. Um, so, like, one of the things, I, the reasons I loved is because whenever I would go, we got to play outside all day long. Like, and now, some of that was because if you went outside, you couldn't come back inside unless you were done for the day. But Zach and I, my little brother, we would go out and we would hang out all day long. We were American Ninja Warrior before that was even a thing. Like, they had a swing set and we're doing all the obstacles that we can think of to go through it. Um, we played football outside all day. We played baseball all day. I mean, we would play games. We didn't, we didn't hit anything, but, you know, we would roll ground balls. And if you missed it, oh, he's going to second. He's going to second. All day long, we would play this. Drink water out the hose, like that, that, that kind of stuff. I don't, if you haven't done that, um, you've been spoiled. Uh, you should be drinking water out the hose when you're a kid. Uh, like that kind of stuff was fun for us. On top of that, Granny, so my grandparents were Granny and Rabbit. Rabbit had big ears. That was my grandfather. That's why we called him Rabbit. Granny stayed on top of the Nintendo game. Like, she had two Super Nintendos in her house and like 30 games. So if me and Zach didn't agree with what we wanted to play, fine, go play your own thing. I'm going to play mine. You, I remember like I had the, the original Nintendo system and it had like the little gun you shoot the ducks with. Like the super had the bazooka, and Granny had the bazooka, and so we would sit there like shooting that thing like all day long. We would wait patiently while Rabbit was watching his Matlock and Columbo, knowing that at some point he was gonna fall asleep. And then we had like a rule: we would like start counting like five minutes in. Okay, he's been snoring for five. We're good because if we did it before that, he'd wake up and say, "I was watching that," and we're like, "No, you weren't. You were sleeping." But we knew to wait a little while because if we waited, he wasn't going to wake up. So there was the video games. Uh, I loved watching baseball with my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he, he he actually played a little bit of professional ball. His son played in the minors for a while. And so he was a wealth of knowledge for a kid like me who loved the game. And so we would watch our, our mid-afternoon Cubs games with Harry Carey uh, on the TV screen. And then we would watch the Braves games afterwards. And like that's what we did. But the best thing about going to their house during the summer was Granny could cook. I know all your grandmothers can cook, but mine can cook. And... I mean, well, I'm talking like crawfish, I was telling Malachi this morning, like crawfish etouffee, uh, gumbo, uh, they something called kushaw, which I haven't had from anybody else, but kushaw, which is almost like a sweet potato, but it's not quite the same. Those were the good days for me. And even when she didn't cook, she had our backs, like she took care of us. So we'd go in the, the pantry, and it was like kid heaven. There's candy, there's cakes, but in the mornings, there's like cereal, everything you can think of. I mean, as a kid, as a you know, six, seven, eight-year-old. But like 10 different kinds of cereals that we could choose from. And I mean, like my favorite was Golden Grahams. So like she always had Golden Grahams. Zach's was Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So she always had Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But then she had like the Peanut Butter um, Captain Crunch, which would like scratch the top of your mouth and like tear it apart. Uh, she'd have the Captain Crunch with the berries. She'd have the Cookie Crisp. Like that was a big thing when it came out. And then she had Grape Nuts. Now, 
I couldn't eat the grape nuts. The grape nuts was for rabbit. My, my grandfather had a heart issue, and, the, and that was for his health. So I had 10 different cereals to choose from, but man, I wanted those grape nuts. And so I would beg Granny day after day, hey, can I have grape nuts today? Can I have grape nuts today? And she's like, no, they're not yours. They're for rabbit. No, they're not yours. They're for rabbit. Well, finally she gave in. She said, fine, you can have one bowl, and this is the only time you can have it. So what did I do? Let me go grab that gumbo bowl, and I'm going to bring it out, and I'm going to pour the whole box, whatever I can fit in this bowl, and I pour my milk in, I go sit down, and I'm happy. Now, this is the thing about grape nuts, if you haven't had them. As soon as that milk touches the grape nuts, they expand. So I've got this huge bowl. I'm eight years old, okay? Like... I mean, I was a big kid, but I mean, think eight-year-old belly. So I've got a huge gumbo bowl full of cereal that is expanding constantly while I'm trying to eat it. Now, Granny had a strict rule at her house. She came from a, uh, her mother had gone through the Great Depression. And so if you've been exposed to the greatest generation, right, then you understand why she would do this. But you could not get up from that table until everything was gone. I don't care how much was there. You had to eat it all. Two hours in... I'm still shoveling as much as I can. And she would walk by and she'd say, you done? And I'm like, uh-uh, I ain't falling for that trick. I'm, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not done. I'm still eating. She'd come by, you done? No, ma'am. Finally, I give in. <laughs> I'm done. She says, are you done? I was like, yes, ma'am. She said, okay, you can get up. And I remember like, that's not right. Something's not right. She's up to something. So I got up and like my brother's been playing Super Nintendo all morning. I'm like walking to the living room. She says, I'll put it in the refrigerator. You can have it for lunch. So she makes my brother a sandwich. It's about three hours later. She makes my brother a sandwich and gives him some chips. And here, now, grape nuts was bad for the first two hours. But when it's been sitting in the refrigerator and it's all soggy and it's like almost like cold oatmeal, it was terrible. She wouldn't let me get up. She said, hey, you done? I keep eating as much as I could. Because I knew at this point Granny was committed. And so I'm like eating as much as I can. And she's like, all right, if you're done, you can have it for dinner. Well, to rub it in, she started frying catfish. She started frying shrimp. She started uh, doing french fries and hush puppies. And like, the whole family's coming over. And I'm like, no way. She's not going to stick with this. Everybody gets down at the table. Here you go, David. Here's your grape nuts. Now, my granny loved me. So at some point, she could see how miserable I was. And she finally said, have you learned your lesson? It's like, yes, ma'am. I'm never going to eat grape nuts again. Like, that's, that's the lesson, right? Uh, so, she, you know, she let me eat all that stuff. I, I say that because I, I, it was a lesson of contentment for me. Deal, in, in the economy of cereal, I had an abundance. I had everything I could ever want. My favorite was in, is in that pantry. Yet I still wanted more. And in the economy of grape nuts, I couldn't settle for just a little. I still wanted something more. 
And that lesson is taught throughout Scripture. If, if you look at the wisdom literature, you'll, you'll see uh, almost side by side. They're, they're split apart a little bit, but there's Job and then there's Ecclesiastes. And what do we know about Job? Job was wealthy. He had, I mean, everything that the, 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 this life would offer. And then it, all of that was taken away from him. And eventually Job comes to the conclusion that his joy can be found in God alone, not in all that stuff. Then you go to the other side of that coin and you get to Solomon who's wealthier than any of us would ever even get close to, had everything under the sun. And he says, vanity of vanities. All of this is vanity. I have come to the conclusion that joy can only come beyond the sun. It can only be found in God. And that's where we are this morning in our text in Philippians. Paul is going to talk about his lesson of contentment. As he is transitioning from this direction to rejoice always, and it comes up again this morning. So let's, let's start in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So coming immediately after Paul's direction to rejoice always in the Lord, and he goes, you know, again, I say rejoice. Coming immediately after this discussion of not being anxious for anything, but bring, bring all of your worries to, to God in prayer. And to put into practice all of these things that they have seen and learned from Paul. Paul gives them a, an example of something to practice. And it's contentment. It's rejoicing. He says, I've rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That word rejoice is a constant theme. I appreciate Josh, Josh bringing that up again for us this morning as he was reading. Because as we have seen throughout this entire letter, this unshakable joy comes from this, this idea of who I am in Christ and what he has done in this future hope and glory. And so whatever situation I find myself in, I can rejoice. And this theme has come up constantly, and it's worthwhile now that we're at the very end of our series. We've got, a, I think, one more week to come to look back and consider what we have seen. Because if you take our Bible study methods class, one of the things we tell you, if it's repeated, it's important. If you see something that's repeated in Scripture, you should pay attention. And joy and rejoicing comes up frequently throughout this whole letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, he starts off by saying, I pray for you with joy. As Paul is in prison, thinking about this church that he's not writing to correct. You go through all the other letters he writes, he, he's correcting something in that church. This one is, is just writing to his brothers and sisters, asking them, hey, continue in unity. Complete my joy, he brings up later in the letter. He talks in, in about in verse one, chapter eight, uh, chapter one, verse eighteen. He says that he rejoices in Christ being proclaimed, regardless of the motive behind that proclamation. Right? That he was in prison, and there were some who were preaching Christ, maybe not with the right motive, but he says, "I rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed." In verse nineteen of that same chapter, he says he rejoices in his assurance that he will be delivered, whether it's in death or in life. In verse 25 of chapter 1, he says that he is convinced that he will remain for the church's joy in the faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about completing his joy 
by remaining united. And we see later on in chapter 4 that there were some who were not, which is why he brought that up. Verse 17, he says that he, if he was poured out as a sacrificial offering, he would rejoice in his suffering. Immediately after that, he says, so if that happens, church in Philippi, you rejoice with me. In verse 28, he brings up the anticipated rejoicing from the church as their brother Epaphroditus would be returning to them. And so he tells them, hey, in verse 29, receive them with joy. Chapter 3, verse 1, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. And that's where he starts saying, hey, you should rejoice. You should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And here we are again in verse 10 of chapter 4. And he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. What is the source of that joy? The reason I went through the exercise of pointing to you throughout the whole letter how this constantly comes up is because if we were to just look at this one passage, we might be tempted to say that the source of his joy was their generosity for him, that they cared for him. But that is not the source of his joy. He says, I rejoice in the Lord. That is the same source that led them to generosity. As they think about who Christ is and how his sacrifice has affected them, they are now generous with their, their possessions. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their efforts. So much so that this brother went all the way to Paul in prison and almost died because he got sick. That is where his joy comes from. It comes from Christ. But he recognizes that that same Source is providing this generosity. So he says, I rejoice in the Lord. When you look at the letters that Paul writes, he always thanks God for the churches. He doesn't thank the churches because he knows who is providing all things, who is meeting every need that he has, and who has given him all the good. This joy is coming from Christ. So once again, as happens sometimes when we go verse by verse through some of these books in the Bible, we're faced with a, the question that we've seen in prior weeks. Who or what are we turning to for joy? Because if the answer is anything but Christ, you will be disappointed and you will be frustrated. I brought this up a few weeks ago. If it's your spouse... Or if you're dating someone and you think that that would bring you joy, you're longing for that, that companion. I'm a husband, and I would tell you, I am a disappointment to my wife if she wants that from me. Because I cannot provide her eternal joy. I will let her down. If it's your kids, if it's a career that can be here today and gone tomorrow, those things will not last. Listen to those who have gone before Solomon who was, had all the wisdom in the world and he said, all this is nothing. It's meaningless. Reach for the things that are beyond the sun. Set your minds on things not of this earth, but heavenly things. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that their concern for him was revived? So let's focus on that word. For something to be revived, it, needs, it implies that it once was, then it wasn't, and then it came back to be. 
right? That's, that's a revive. Something has to be existing. If we talk about it, like, let's think of Lazarus. Lazarus was living. Lazarus died three days in the tomb. That, the man was definitely dead because he stunk, right? And then three days later, he's back to life again. He was revived. If you were with us, when we began this series, or if you were with us through our study of Acts, you'll recall how this church in Philippi was planted. We go back to Acts chapter 16, and we see how Paul was convinced that he should go through Macedonia, and as he does, he comes across first this wealthy, successful fashion designer, Lydia. He spends time with Lydia. She has all these questions. He's able to point her to Jesus, and she believes. Then there's the demon-possessed girl that Paul is able to free from her bondage and captivity. And then there's the Macedonian jailer, the tough guy, who is broken when he finds out that these men who have been singing songs and preaching the gospel to him did not leave and spared his life, essentially, by doing so when they had the opportunity to leave. That's where this church started. If you read Acts chapter 16, at the very end, we're going to have it on the screen. It's, it's, it's a quick reference here. I want to show you what, what happened with Paul and Silas as they left the prison. Starting in verse 39, so they came and apologized to them, being the, the magistrates. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, we might read that and think, well, they went out of prison and they just stopped by Lydia's house. They went and visited her, they visited the brothers, and then they were on their way. You've got to remember the conditions that they were in in that prison. That prison, it was the inner part of the prison. And so if you recall when we were going through Acts, you'll remember that's where all of the, the feces and all of the urine and all that stuff would funnel down into that room. And then they were in stocks. They weren't just chilling, lounging on a chair. They, they were in stocks. And they had been beaten with rods. They left that prison and they went from the worst of conditions to like the best. They went to grandma's house, right? Lydia has abundance of food. She's probably got this nice couch that they can sleep on. I mean, she's got it all. She's very successful in this world. She's wealthy. They didn't just go by and visit. These men were recovering at her house. And after some, spending some time there, they move on, right? And that's what we learned when we were going through Acts is that they never, Paul never lost sight of the mission, right? That, that God's mission, his gospel will continue to advance despite of opposition and a lot of times because of opposition, and so he was focused, he recovered, and then they moved on to Thessalonica. I point that out because what we learn from the text that we're going to study in greater detail next week is that this church supported him when he went on to Thessalonica. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. He said, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So let's go back to this idea of being revived. They had supported him. They had cared for him at one point. 
But if it's going to be revived, it has to die. Right? And that's where he says, at long last, you are now able to do so. And then he clarifies something. And that's where we have to go to the Greek a little bit. I'm not going to get nerdy on you because I don't know Greek. But I just let people tell me what it says. But the word that's used for revive is actually an agricultural term. So, like, I'm thinking about this. We have a bush in our backyard. Now, I don't know anything about plants. Don't ask me what kind of flowers they are. I don't know anything about it. But there is a bush, and about twice a year, it produces flowers. They're pretty. They're pink. Well, the bush is living that whole time. Just because I don't see the flowers, the bush is living. And then I know it's living whenever the fruit is produced, right? The flower is produced. And that's the idea here. These people didn't just stop caring for him. What he says is you didn't have an opportunity. And now that you had the opportunity, you've taken advantage of it and you have cared for me again. So for Paul, what he's saying is that feeling of being cared for and comforted by you, that is revived. Because at long last, you now have had the opportunity to do for me once what you used to do, what you had done at one time. We know this because in verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So now we understand more fully what he's talking about when he talks about this concern of theirs being revived. Epaphroditus, the one who came to him, who he was sending back to them, and he was looking forward to that, right? He told them, like, you, I want you to receive him with great joy because this dude almost died bringing your gifts to me. He got sick. And he's worried about the way you're perceiving him. He's worried that you're worried about him. And so he's looking forward to coming home. That's where that came from. Now, quick application here from this. This was Christ-like generosity. This church went to great lengths to provide care for him and express their love for Paul, their brother. They took up a collection, gifts, and they sent Epaphroditus to bring it to him. I'd like to think we would do the same. I'd like to think that our church would be commended for our generosity, that we would have sacrificed both great and small, regardless of what that looked like. Whether it was trading in a $5 cup of coffee for the free stuff they give us at work, whether it's passing on the steak and potato for the rice and beans, or whether it's selling our second or third car selling our home, downgrading, downsizing, so that we might be able to care for a brother or sister. I would hope that that would be the response we would have. Not because I'm telling you to do so, but because Christ has done that for us, much greater. And as the church, we are called to live like Christ. We are called to reflect his image. And so whatever that looks like, I can't tell you specifically, but that's generosity. And for those of you who may not have the material things that you think you can give up, there were others involved with this. I mean, I'm thinking of if that, if that was going to Paul and he's in prison, it's not like today where I could have texted him or sent him an email. Man, I would have written that dude a letter. The time and effort it would have taken to just pour out my heart and prayers for, for a brother and write that down for him and send that to him. That's a sacrifice. Epaphroditus. We don't know much about him. We don't know if he... 
he was wealthy or if he had anything he could have offered. But what he did do is I'll bring it to him. Like I'll be the one that goes and I'll face whatever's out there to make sure he gets these gifts. It's sacrifice. It's generosity. I'd like to think that if that was us, we would do the same. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I'm going to let that just sit on you for a little bit. And you can consider that when you go home. Because this is not like, hey, now let's fill up the offering plate kind of a thing. Like, that's not what we do. But I'm just pointing out to you that generosity is a natural overflow for the heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes, that's what we do. Transitioning from verse 10 to verses 11 through 13, Paul chases a rabbit here. He chases a rabbit that stems off of this discussion of joy in Christ, and we, the church, should be forever grateful. Maybe the one time that somebody who was like a preacher would do that, <laughs> because it was worthwhile. Because what we have is one of the most encouraging, one of the most challenging, and still one of the most misapplied texts in all of Scripture. So let's look at verses 11 through 12. He follows up and he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So stemming off this discussion of the Philippians church, uh, their, their provision for him, Paul is quick to clarify. Their provision is a blessing in abundance because I'm not lacking. I am not in need. Now let's think about this. Josh brought this up this morning too. Where is Paul when he's writing this? Not, let's think physically where is he. Okay, we know he's in prison. He's chained up to another dude. He, he, does, he does not have freedom. He can't go wherever he wants, whenever he wants. And it's not as bad as the prison he would have been in, in Macedonia. But it's still prison. He, he, he doesn't, he's not getting three square meals a day. He's not, he's not just relaxed and in luxury. We know this because Paul is looking what's coming forward in this letter. And he says... To live is Christ, to die is gain. We know that Paul is thinking that this might lead to death. That is what Paul is enduring right now. And yet he still says, thank you. I, I rejoice in the Lord for your provision for me. But I want to make sure you understand I'm not in need. I'm not lacking. Why? The explanation follows. And it's... It's indicated by that word for. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, whatever situation. Verse 12, he says, whether it's him being brought low or him having abundance. In any and every. That's exhaustive language, right? In any and every situation, no matter what he faced in his life, Paul learned the secret. The thing that was once hidden and now has been revealed. He learned contentment. Notice that this was something Paul learned. That's important. 
Because what I don't want you doing today is leaving here being very frustrated because you're not content. I want you to be a little frustrated. I want, uh, ho hopefully the Holy Spirit is pointing out something to you because this is something Paul had to learn. What does that mean? That means that Paul had to be instructed about it. That means that Paul had to put it into practice. That means Paul had to fail. I mean, for sure, he probably failed at being content. And then he was corrected. That's how we learn things, right? A lot of you are teachers in the classroom. Sometimes you have that really smart student that picks up on something really quickly. But at some point, that student is not going to pick up on everything you teach. They're going to have to think about it. They're going to have to try it out. Like, I'm thinking of math because that's just what I do. But I'm thinking of, like, man, I tried out the, that thing he told me about, and I didn't come out with the right answer. Let me figure out what the right answer is. How do they get there? Let me go back and try to figure that out. That's learning, right? It's the same in life. When I, when I went through driver's ed, by the grace of God, I passed. Because the first, I remember the first time I drove, we doing the driving test, it was one of, man, it was the, it was the worst nightmare. Like, you, you fear this. The yellow light comes up. Do I go? Do I stop? I'm kind of in between. And so I'm like, ah, I think I can make it. Ran a red light. First time driving in driver's ed. Second time driving in driver's ed. I didn't run a red light. But I was in Baton Rouge, that's where I grew up, and if you know where the USS Kid is, down there by the levee downtown, I was coming down that, up that road, and I was coming up back towards the interstate. It's a hill, and I caught the red light, and I knew we were going to go on that path, and I, I feared that that was going to happen, and sure enough, I did. So I'm sitting there, looking up, it's a steep hill, and then I'm like, okay, well, maybe somebody won't pull up behind me. Suburban, brand new, pull up behind me, pretty white. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Light turns green, car in front of me doesn't go. So I'm like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. They start moving. I take my foot off the brake, and just the slightest movement backward freaked me out, and I gassed it. Spun out. I'm like taking off, and I'm just like... And you know, the driver's sitting next to me. He's a teacher at our school. And he's like, hey, let's never do that again. <laughs> I had to learn. I, I was told what to do in the classroom. I go put it into practice and I fail miserably, but then I was corrected. Now, I'd like to say I'm a better driver today, but there's still things I need to learn. That's where Paul is. He says, I learned how to be content in whatever situation. That means Paul has faced being brought low and has failed at it. That means Paul has lived in abundance and has failed at it. But then where he is today, much later in his life, he's towards the end of his life, much farther along in his sanctific sanctification process than most of us, if not all of us. And he says, guys, I, I'm not lacking anything. I've learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in. And we've seen in prison that he endured a lot. And I could go through the practice of walking through Acts where we've been before and pointing out to you all the different types of suffering and persecution that he went through. But he does a good job of summarizing that for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 16, uh, this is a pretty lengthy passage, so I would, I would either, either encourage you to turn there or you can follow along with us. 
But what you need to know about this before we get in there is Paul's about to exaggerate to get a point across, okay? And he's going to remind us that he's doing that throughout the, the text. But he's trying to make a point to the church in Corinth by exaggerating some things about himself, all right? Starting in verse 16, he said, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. That's where he's saying, hey guys, I'm about to get foolish on you. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, reminder, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, and danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Long story short, Paul went through it in his life. Beaten, in prison, shipwrecked, floating, a night at sea. Having to escape through a wall, letting, being let down in a basket. He's gone through it. He knows what it means to be brought low. He knows what it means to face hunger. He knows what it's like to go without. And because of that, he has learned how to be content in that. We've also seen him go spend time with Lydia. Abundance. And Paul has learned how to be content, even if I've got a lot. What we learn about Paul here is that for him, it wasn't about pursuing health, wealth, and prosperity. We also see it wasn't about Paul pursuing poverty. That's not what's going on here. 
Paul's point is that he had learned to be content regardless of the situation, regardless of what came his way, but his way is headed towards the gospel always. He is pushing forward, proclaiming the gospel, so whatever comes his way, he embraces it. Why was Paul content? Because his mind was not set on the things of this earth, but on heavenly things. His focus was on Christ. So then we get to Philippians 4.13. And I'm, I'm making a point. I am not going to stir up the monsters in this room who are going to like, oh yeah, give it to them. That's not what four, Philippians 4.13 says. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to show you now that now that we're, we've seen it in context, what does it mean? Because it does not mean that I can score a touchdown whenever I want to. It does not mean that I'm going to start a new business and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so this is going to be a success. It's ironic that when I see it misused, it is either as a consolation or a justification to discontentment. That's what it is. It's like when I fail at something, okay, well, let me remind myself that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I lose my job because I just didn't perform. I can, I, I can do all things through Christ. It's a, it's a reminder like, of this thing that has never been promised to us. And then it's almost like a justification. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this thing and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's ironic that it's misused. It's complete opposite of what we actually see it being used for in, in context when Paul. Paul is saying, man, I've, I've, I've had a lot and I've had nothing. And what I've come to know, I've learned to be content in whatever situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. I can endure having nothing, going without, because of Christ. I can live in abundance and be content with it because of Christ. I'm going to go back to my original illustration, right? I had abundance of cereal. When you talk about the things of this world, some of us may have an abundance. Are you content with that? Or are you like me? That eight-year-old boy who said, that's great, I want more. Or, maybe you have nothing. Go into the example of the grape nuts specifically. I didn't have grape nuts. I was lacking. When I get them, am I content with a little bit? You get something in this world and, man, maybe you catch a break and you finally get a job and it's a, it's a good one. Are you content with that? Or do you want more? And in our society, we, we are taught that. We are taught, hey, you can do whatever you want as long as you set your mind to it. And that just, it, it, it infiltrates our souls to the point where even though we are trusting in Christ, we're like, oh yeah, that's good, but I can go do that thing as long as I set my mind to it. And that's not at all what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, you can endure all things whether good or bad, because the, the conditions, the circumstances do not matter. Christ is what matters, and that is the source of our strength. Have you learned the secret of contentment? This is not a statement of his ability. 
Paul. It is a statement that speaks to the extent of Christ's provision. Have you learned that secret? If you've been brought low, if you were low today, you can be content. You can be satisfied because Jesus, the Son of God, the highest of all highs, became the lowest of all lows. He knows what it's like. He had no place to lay his head. The opposition he faced was greater than what we face. It's greater than what Paul faced. If you have hunger and need, do not be anxious about anything. Because the Lord is at hand, right? It's what we studied a couple weeks ago. Might have been last week. Do not be anxious about anything. Because the Lord is at hand. Instead, bring your worries and prayer to the one who can help you and will help. He will meet your needs. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The words of Christ. Life is more than that. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, and he still provides food for them. Consider the grass of the field, the lilies, clothed in more glory than Solomon ever knew. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Are you not of more value than they? He will provide you what you need. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all those things, those things that you need, not those things that we want, and we need to figure out what that is, but all those things that we need, he will provide us. If you were to remain as you are the rest of your life, and still have Christ, would you be content? Because this is what I know. And I've, I've shared a little bit about my upbringing and what my life looked like as a kid. And I'm very careful not to say I wasn't in poverty, but I was lower middle class on the socioeconomic chain. Like we were towards the bottom. And so I knew what it was like to eat ramen noodles during the summer. I knew what it was like to, the Totino's pizzas. Like that was, that was it for us, man. That was it. That was life. And still, I struggle with this. Like, I, I was telling uh, uh, Blake and Trent, and I think I told uh, Josh Harris, I, I'm standing before you preaching something that I struggle to believe all the time. Like, that's very difficult for us. And I know sometimes me or Blake or Trent or sometimes Joey may share that with you, but it's hard for us sometimes to declare truth knowing that I haven't fully embraced it yet. It's, it's simple to understand what's being said here. It's very difficult to embrace. And even when I was low, there was a future hope that I wouldn't be. So I ask that question because if you were to remain where you are today for the rest of your life, would you be content? And if you answer no to that, I'm telling you right now there's some sin in your heart. Because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the future glory that we have with Christ. And we can do all things through him who gives us strength. If you abound, if you have plenty, learn to be content in Christ. 
who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant born as a man humbled himself to death on a cross not so that we can chase after temporary things because we know that that is a vain pursuit he did that so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow as we sang about this morning and every single tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's convicting. Because as one who knows what it's like to be brought low, and one who has a successful career, like I love my job, and I'm good at it, and God has blessed us along the way, I find myself sometimes still reaching for more. And what I've come to realize is that eight-year-old boy still exists. That I have not quite figured out what it's like to have a little or much. If everything was stripped away from you, all of your, your houses, your retirement accounts, your boats, your truck, whatever it is that you cling to, if all of that was stripped away from you, except Christ, would you be content? And I'll tell you the same thing. If the answer to that is no, sin is present. And I would encourage you to explore where it is, what that sin is, and where it exists. And to all of us, I do want to make sure that we understand this. It is not a sin to pursue excellence. We were created to exercise domain over this creation. And we are to work hard as unto the Lord. But it's for the Lord. It's not for ourselves. And that's what we have to remember. And if we get blessing, look, Lydia was a believer. She was wealthy. It's okay to have things and be a Christian as long as that's not what you're pursuing. As long as you use it for the same mission that all of us would use whatever it is we have. Those are resources that he has given us and we're going to use it for kingdom work. So a house, extra bedroom, can you fill it? Can you fill it? Not with stuff. A lot of us have in this church. A lot of you know that. There's foster kids in our church. We've adopted. Some of us have taken people into our homes who just, man, they just needed a temporary relief. What about our cars? Do we really need three? Do we really need four? I mean, like, I'm just, and I'm just throwing a couple of examples out there. I'm not trying to convict anybody. I'm going to let the Spirit do that. But it's also not a sin to pursue excellence. It is not a, it is not a sin to be successful. It is a sin to prioritize those things over Christ. And if you are discontent with the little you have or the abundance you have, your priorities are wrong. And so ask God to reveal that to you.